Welcome to ReachMD, this medical industry feature titled Fireside Chats, Top Abstracts Related to Axial Manifestations in SPA, is sponsored by Novartis Medical Affairs. So um, welcome to the ACR 2020 Fireside Chats. Um, we're here for the next hour, uh, for half an hour thinking about spondyloarthritis and then half an hour moving on to Stills disease. So my name's Laura Coates, I'm an Associate Professor at the University of Oxford um, and I've been there for three years uh, having moved down to Leeds and my particular interest is in psoriatic arthritis and I'm presenting today with Alexis. Hi, I'm Alexis Ivey uh, for University of Pennsylvania. I'm Associate Professor of Medicine and Epidemiology there. Um, so this presentation is sponsored by Novartis. Um, we really appreciate Novartis giving us the opportunity to share work from ACR. Um, Novartis determined the topic areas, so thinking particularly around the axial side of spondyloarthritis, including axial PSA, and then in Stills disease. But within those topics, we've been given free reign to select what we felt were the most interesting abstracts from the meeting this year. And so between each pair um, in the different subject areas, um, we've selected these top abstracts to talk you through and talk you through why we chose these to discuss today. So it's a summary of the data that uh, has been presented at ACR, I think um, one that's due to be presented tomorrow, um, but really represents our views on why these are important um, and what we've learned and will take back from the research that we've seen this year. Uh, so these are our disclosures. All right, with that, I'll get started and take away with the first abstract. Um, so the title of this abstract is Use of the BASDI in Psoriatic Arthritis Patients with and Without Axial Disease. This was presented on Friday as a poster. Um, this is from our cohort in the United States. I can go ahead and advance to the next slide. So this is a longitudinal cohort study among patients with psoriatic arthritis. Patients are enrolled at any point in time um, so they can start therapy at a second visit or first visit. We chose to take a visit where patients were starting or changing therapy um, and then followed forward in time. This data counts from 2017 to January 2020. We divided patients into two groups, patients who have axial disease and those who do not. And we defined axial disease in a variety of ways, but the way we're presenting here is axial disease is defined by either the clinician saying that the patient has axial PSA or that they have MRI, X-ray, or CT features of um, sacroiliitis or spine disease consistent with axial spinal arthritis. So then what we did is we looked at differences in baseline scores among BASDI items. Um, so here you can see just a few of these samples. We have the, the full BASDI the spine pain, stiffness, uh, patient global patient pain, and rapid three, just to get a sense of how other things were different. And we looked at the baseline score, mean uh, baseline score, by whether or not the patient had axial disease. Now, it's important to note that most of the axial patients also had peripheral disease. There were relatively few that had axial disease alone. So these, all, these patients all generally also had peripheral disease. So what we found is that the, the scores at baseline were not that different between patients with without um, axial uh, PSA. Then we, we, we looked at change over time in these individual items as well as the BASDI as a whole. And we looked at this among patients who were initiating therapy and it was specifically either a TNF inhibitor or an IL-17 inhibitor. And then followed up at their next visit somewhere around 16 to 24 weeks on average after that first visit. 
and repeated the BAS diet as well as these other scores. We then looked at the this SRM or standardized response mean. So that's the mean change divided by the standard deviation to give a same score across all different measures. And what you can see here also, similar to the, the graph above, that there was really no significant difference in change in the BASDI as a whole or individual items, including specifically the spine question BASDI, by whether or not the patient had axial disease. So uh, maybe I'll let Laura throw out some points about why this is important or what we think is important about this. Yeah, so I think axial psoriatic arthritis has become a really hot topic recently, and there's been a lot of interest around spinal disease in PSA, um, at least partly driven by the differential response that we see with some biologics that seem to work for the peripheral disease, but maybe not for the axial disease, or at least where there's some debate about that. And there's been a lot of work looking at um, secondary outcomes, uh, including BASDI scores, in psoriatic arthritis disease studies, and kind of using this to argue that there is a, a response to a drug based on a BASDI um, in patients who have predominantly peripheral disease. And I think this study, along with some previous studies, but this is probably one of the larger ones now, um, really shows that, that we shouldn't be doing that, that BASDI is a really helpful patient-reported outcome measure. It's something that we rely on a lot in clinical practice for axial disease, it's really heavily influenced by peripheral joint disease. So it's basically behaving just like a global VAS score. It's not specific to the spinal disease. And as Alexis has talked you through here, even if we look at specific questions, so the questions specifically about pain in your neck, back and hips, um, still doesn't differentiate between the peripheral and the axial patients. So I think it's a real caution around using outcome measures and this idea that it's very hard to separate out the different domains of PSA. It's really important to do so when we're thinking about choosing therapies and looking at which therapies work for which elements of the disease. But it's really hard, especially from the patient perspective, for them to accurately set, separate out the different aspects of their disease. Great, we can move to the next one, perfect. Okay, so um, the next one, definitely following on on the theme, um, looked at the relative diagnostic utility, utility of IBP criteria, inflammatory back pain criteria, in an inception cohort of patients who presented with a risk factor for spondyloarthritis, so psoriasis, iritis, and colitis, but then presented with undiagnosed back pain. So if we look at the data, you can see this is from a large European study um, looking at patients who were under 45, had at least three months of back pain and some sort of risk factor or extra articular feature of axial spondyloarthritis. So they're clearly a high risk group as opposed to the general population where an awful lot of back pain is going to be normal mechanical back pain rather than inflammatory back pain. And they use different IBP criteria. So you can see here the ASAS, the Berlin, the KLIM criteria um, to look at whether the IBP criteria could actually predict or decide who was going to end up with a diagnosis of axial spondyloarthritis. And that was done according to the physician. So this is using the physician as a gold standard. They were asked after clinical examination and history, do you think this is axial spar? Then the patients got labs and radiography and they were asked again, now do you think it's axial spar? 
and then potentially an MRI as well. So it was at different stages in that diagnosis process. And this slide shows you the rheumatologist diagnosis as the external reference. And you can see that the sensitivity is pretty good. So an awful lot of people with sacroiliitis, with um, active axial disease, will have positive IBP criteria, but the specificity is really poor. So actually having inflammatory back pain as defined by these criteria isn't particularly good at defining who's going to end up with a diagnosis of spondyloarthritis. And then on the next slide, you can see the same data, uh, but this time looking at MRI. So if you look on the graphs on the right-hand side, this is using MRI as the gold standard rather than the physician, but basically shows the same thing. So reasonable sensitivity, obviously a little bit lower because not all of those um, patients will have the positive MRI. But again, um, the specificity, which is the one underneath, is really quite low, you know, less than 40%. So not particularly helpful in picking up whether this is axial spondyloarthritis. And if you look on the left-hand side, you can see the different criteria. So whether it's ASAS, Berlin, Kalin, or the global score, and whether it's the different risk factors, so the psoriasis or the uveitis or the IBD, really doesn't make much difference. Um, so uh, again, more caution <laughs> about using clinical measures um, in axial spondyloarthritis. Alexis? Yeah, I think this is, like you said, very similar to the last one, and it's kind of a cautionary tale about using different definitions of back pain. Um, so a couple things here that, first of all, if you have uveitis, psoriasis, or IBD, and you have back pain, and you're of the right age, and we're already talking about a high pretest probability of you having X. Um, now, um, if we think about every single thing we do in medicine is, is a test. So if we're asking a question, you can consider that a test, or physical examination, that's a test. So they, they looked at applying IBP criteria as a test and they calculated likelihood ratios for that as well in this study and found that the likelihood, positive likelihood ratio, if you have a, um, a like psoriasis, let's say, and back pain and you're age less than 45 and you ask those IBP criteria, the likelihood ratio is around one. And so if we think about a good test, a good test has a uh, likelihood ratio around 10 and somewhere around the four range, you might start getting into a reasonable test, but we're talking about a not even reasonable test for uh, having spa among a patient with already those criteria. So I think this um, also shows that there's still a lot of work to do in defining who these patients are. But I think you know the bottom line is that these patients are already at very high risk for having spa if you're got one of these three things, you have back pain and you're under age 45. So somebody kind of um, will we'll look out for more criteria to help differentiate those people who might need imaging, for example. All right, so we'll move from here into some imaging of AXPA. So this was the Filgotinib's trial that, that was presented before, but this is now the subset of people who had MRI uh, imaging, and they're gonna show us a little bit about how things change with Filgotinib. Um, so next slide. So this is gonna be presented tomorrow, um, but kind of having looked at things already. Uh, so what they did in this study is among patients who received Filgotinib or placebo, basically anyone in the trial, there were 116 people enrolled, but about 88 or so actually had imaging of their full spine. So in this case, they did it, not the typical SI joint um, scoring, but they used a different score called the Candon score. And this score takes into account the posterior elements, kind of more of the spine elements themselves, 
in the spinal column. And it looks at inflammation, and then there's some subscores for erosions, for example, and ankylosis, um, as well as bone marrow edema. And what they found, and you can kind of see in these two, these three different graphs here, is that the curves do separate. So you can tell who was receiving therapy with pilgotinib compared to placebo. And then um, if we go to the next score, so that, recall this is like a 12-week phase two trial. So how much is really going to change over 12 weeks? Well, you can see actually there's a decent amount of change in the inflammation score and that least mean, uh, least squared mean negative uh, 4.4 compared to placebo of 0.09. So basically no change in the placebo group. A little less change in the fat score, which actually goes up. So that's a kind of, I'm not, not sure if you have any insight to that, Laura, if that's supposed to go up, but um, kind of interesting there. But then no change in erosions or ankylosis, but we really wouldn't expect to see that really at 12 weeks. So this is kind of in line with expectations. Um, so first study showing a JAK inhibitor and the Im impact on, on, uh, on this particular score uh, um, within MRI of the spine and AXPA. Yeah, so I think we picked this for a number of reasons really. So obviously JAK inhibitors and axial disease are an exciting new development in a, an area of spondyloarthritis where we are much more limited in our treatment options. We um, are quite lucky in PSA at the moment in terms of having a number of drugs that work, um, but some of those drugs have not translated well into the axial um, element of the disease. So it's really good to have another option and um, to have an oral option that works, which is exciting. Um, and then I guess the discussion around this scoring system. So um, we, as you've seen in the previous two abstracts, do not do particularly well just on um, history and patient reported outcomes, be it for diagnosis or for disease activity. So having the MRIs is really important to give you some sort of surety and reassurance that this is definitely having an effect on a very objective outcome measure. And for that, you need these really well-developed scoring systems. And then I think, again, looking into the axial PSA side of things, this is an AS trial, but this new scoring method may be really beneficial in the axial PSA studies. So it's covering more different elements of the spine, as Alexis outlined, um, and that may be even more important in the axial PSA patients compared to the AS patients. And if we're not looking, for example, in the facet joints for disease activity, then we're potentially missing disease in our patients. So I think this is really useful to show a new, um, very well-developed score from experts in the field from, from Canada and Denmark, hence the CANDEN score, um, and confirming that very good differentiation between drug and placebo. So we know this has the sensitivity to change, at least in the inflammatory components rather than the structural damage components. And also, just throw out there, the, one of the other new abstracts was a late-breaking abstract was the tofacitinib axpa data. So I think we're learning in general more about these drugs in, um, in AXPA, as you said. Yeah, and no, I think it, it's going to be a great opportunity to have new drugs and to have orally effective agents for spinal disease, which has, has just not been an option. Um, so it'll be nice to have a, a different MOA coming, coming to the table next year. So this is a cluster randomized pragmatic clinical trial evaluating the potential benefit of a tight control and treat to target strategy in axial spondyloarthritis. So this is the TACOSPA trial following on from TACORA and TACOPA um, in the other elements of inflammatory arthritis. 
So this was a cluster randomized control trial. So it differs really in terms of design from Tacora and Tacopa in two main ways, I think. The first is that this was cluster randomized. So rather than each patient being randomized to treat to target or type four standard care, um, each hospital that was involved was randomized either to standard care or to a treat to target regime. Um, and obviously that's beneficial because it potentially reduces the noise um, and the contamination between doctors. If you train half of your doctors to do treat to target, then the other half are probably going to find out about it and maybe are going to do it in the standard care group without really meaning to. Um, but it does also potentially mean that your groups are a bit more different because you're using, you know, 10 hospitals in one group and 10 hospitals in another. Um, so the patients may be different, the doctors may be different, all sorts of other factors may be different. But the, the type control approach was very similar to the previous studies. It used ASTAS as the type control criteria, aiming for an ASTAS of less than 2.1, but with visits every four weeks, as we did in, in Tacora and Tacopa. Um, and then rheumatologists um, in the usual care group saw patients every 12 weeks, which is probably more like routine practice, although I have to say, particularly with COVID as well, I suspect a lot of centres may struggle even to get 12-week appointments routinely for their patients. And then the other key difference as well as the cluster randomization was the primary outcome measure chosen for this trial, and that was the improvement in the ASAS Health Index after a year of the study being running. So you can see here the first bars on the left is that change in ASAS Health Index. It's a 30% improvement in the ASAS HI. And that's not a disease activity measure. It's a quality of life measure, essentially. It's a disease impact or quality of life measure. And what you can see is the study did not meet its primary outcome. So it did not show that type control in axial spondyloarthritis improves over usual care. Now, in some of the secondary outcomes, they did show a numerical difference. Um, they also potentially showed a benefit in terms of the um, health economics um, when taking into account the population costs, people being out of work or, or um, work unstable. Um, but it certainly didn't meet all of its secondary outcomes and, and most crucially didn't meet the primary outcome in this study. I think one of the things that we've talked about the most is the, the mismatch of the outcome and the target. And I think that makes some sense. And, and I understand why they chose something different in that it's something that really matters to patients is that their quality of life improves. That brings up a few questions though, is if you're targeting the disease activity and so you're targeting their CRP and a few items of their BASDI, and then you're measuring the outcome as being something totally different, which isn't necessarily always improved. You know, sleep and fatigue and some of these other things don't always improve with therapy because they're so multifactorial. You can see how you could miss that target. And so it was, a, in some ways, a little bit of a risky target, maybe. Um, also, mm -hmm. they, they use a threshold of 30% improvement. Um, which I guess they had some data for, but I, um, I don't know of why, what, what made that 30% improvement, for example. So is that important to patients? Does that meet a, a significant threshold? So, um, you know, I think it, it raises more questions than maybe it, it, uh, that it answered, but I mean, that's good. So I think that, you know, what should we be targeting and treat to target? Is, is it really right just to target the CRP when we know that half of our patients in practice don't have an elevated CRP? Is it yeah. right to target, 
you know, just these few items of the bad dye and this score, as opposed to referring for sleep management, referring for fatigue, especially if your outcome is going to be quality of life. So I think there's a, a lot to learn about what is the target and how do we treat the target and act far. Um, I, I know we've also talked about kind of the interesting thing about the economic analyses because you can show an economic improvement in terms of population metrics, in terms of work productivity and stuff. But then you, those patients received a lot more biologic therapy. They had a lot more visits, which in different health systems have different costs. Um, so it'd be kind of interesting to know if that really evened out. Yeah, I mean, the use of biologics was well over double in the tight control versus the standard care group. So in terms of direct health costs, this was relatively expensive to do, although obviously if it is keeping people in work, then that may well be worth doing. Um, but I think the other issue that we have in axial spondyloarthritis, which kind of comes back to the previous abstract, we haven't got many treatment options. I think when we designed the um, approach for Tacopa, we did as much as we could with limited evidence, but it was very much a step-up approach. So we tried conventional DMARDs because we're in the UK. We had to try at least two of those before patients are eligible for biologics. Then we went on to biologics. So there's, there's very much a kind of clear escalation and step-up approach, which you can apply in RA and PS, in, in PSA. But in AXBAR, you're really going straight from anti-inflammatories to biologics, and you've only got two biologics or two classes. So how much do you keep switching? You know, if somebody does reasonably well, but their ASTAS is still not 2.1, do you switch to a second or a third biologic when you're worried that you're running out of options? So I wonder if part of it reflects the actual availability of treatment options um, and the kind of approaches that you can bring into that treat-to-target approach. Yeah, I fully agree. I, I would, I keep, I mean, I'm a more resident to switch sometimes for my ACT spa patient that's, you know, mostly doing okay, but has a couple of things going on. I, I would be a little more resident to, resident to switch in that ACT spa patient like that compared to a PSA patient where we have more options, we do more combination therapy and so on. So yeah, I think there's a lot to learn here. The other thing that they mentioned was, um, you know, maybe 52 weeks is too short of a time to expect a, a, much of a change in quality of life. I hope that's not the case, but um, that yeah, was I, th I think that was a big leap. Um, so obviously, Tacora and Tacopa used disease activity measures as the primary outcome. We used ACR20 and Tacopa, um, but we still showed improvement in quality of life. <laughs> um, so it's not that we didn't meet a quality of life outcome. It just wasn't our primary outcome. Um, so I think there is more of a difference here um, compared to the previous studies that have gone before. And the other thing they mentioned is they didn't include imaging, which, you know, ideally in a in best case scenario, they would. Um, but obviously it's hard to see much. I mean, again, we saw that the MRI, you can see changes, but it adds a lot to the cost of the study as well. So, but I think in an ideal world, that would have been nice to see. Okay. And then we've got one last abstract. All right, so this is another, um, a, a poster presented um, Saturday by uh, Frank Behrens. Um, this is looking at, it's a new clinical trial, um, first results from this 52-week trial presented. Um, and this is efficacy and safety of, of secukinumab for spinal arthritis and thesitis, specifically at the Achilles tendon. Um, so we can go to the next slide. So in this study, uh, patients with psoriatic arthritis or AXPA were enrolled that had heel emphysitis. So it's kind of cool that it's both spa populations, PSA and AXPA. And they examined um, patients who had 
uh, MRI positive heel emphysitis. So there was a separate abstract by Zenithon um, showing you know, how, what proportion of patients actually had a positive MRI um, that, was, that were screened for this study. So that was kind of interesting in and of itself to look at baseline characteristics. But then they followed patients over the course of 24 weeks with the primary outcome for heel emphysitis resolution. And there's a variety of other outcome measures too. Um, this study did not meet its primary endpoint. Um, so there was not, even though there's a numerical difference in the proportion of patients achieving Achilles tendon emphysitis at, at 24 weeks, it was not statistically significant. There were some significant differences in other outcome measures, as you might expect for a PSA or XBOD population being treated with secukinumab, that they had improvement in their global disease activity, for example. Um, there was also uh, an improvement in their global in their heel pain um, score that they they uh, tested as well. So, from this one, um, really interesting novel study design in that it was the first to test a, a randomized first randomized trial to focus on one single emphesis. But some caveats to think about too, which I'll let Laura kind of talk about. Yeah. So as Alexis mentioned, not all of the patients actually had MRI positivity at baseline. And what will be interesting to know is whether that MRI positivity links in with the clinical response. Uh, we don't have that data yet, but we know that quite a few of the patients were thought to have a positive MRI, but actually on the central read, they did not. So it, it raises the issues around diagnosis of emphysitis. Um, Imaging is not necessarily the gold standard. It's not always positive in every patient, but we know that a lot of patients have pain near to an emphysis, and that may not necessarily reflect emphysitis and therefore would not necessarily respond to a drug um, like secukinumab. Um, so I think it, it's really positive that we're seeing trials in these other bit, elements of disease like emphysitis and axial PSA, but it's these caveats of how we measure things. And this is really one of the first studies that's looked at one site. Most of our clinical outcome measures look at the patient. So we add up a number of tender joints or a number of swollen joints. And there's been much less work done on individual joints, or in this case, individual tendons. So we don't know as much about the outcome measures in that situation and about how well people respond. It makes it a lot harder to plan the trial um, along with that imaging issue. Yeah, I think the imaging part is really striking to me too, that these patients had to have an MRI positive heel emphasitis read locally in order to be enrolled. And then when they read them centrally, there's a lot of, you know, misdiagnosis there. So, and we see that all the time in clinical practice that it'll come back saying either yes, enthesitis or no enthesitis or tendonitis. Or, and so there's so many different words and every radiologist is kind of trained differently how to read these. And so there's not really standardized ways of reading an MRI for enthesitis related to AXPA, for example, that adds a lot of mechanical enthesitis or tendonitis in here as well. Um, and you might not, you wouldn't expect ten mechanical tendonitis to necessarily get better with secukinumab um, or any uh, IL-17 or TNF inhibitor, for example. Yeah, absolutely. So I think you can see quite a strong um, flavor running through these five abstracts that the, the links between them in terms of um, the imaging and the clinical measures that we're thinking about in spondyloarthritis. Um, so we've got time for a couple of questions. Um, the first question um, I'll pose to you, Alexis. So. Um, the, going back to that first abstract, looking at the BASDI score, should we be looking just at the one or two of the components of the BASDI rather than the whole BASDI score, or do we need to think of something else? 
<laughs> something else, I think. Um, I, no matter how you look at the FAS diet, it's really not that much different between people with and without axial disease. So I think we need something different. And, and maybe imaging could be the answer. That's right, I agree. So if there's any additional questions, we could maybe do one more. Or if not, then well, we'll... What are your thoughts on whether metrology measures would perform better in AXPA? Okay, so, um, so metrology is obviously an interesting um, approach and it's something that's a little bit more objective, although I think it probably depends how far your patient tries and how much you try um, in the methodology. I think the problem obviously is it's not necessarily just related to disease activity. There's going to be stiffness and damage if people have had disease for a long time. That, so it may not be as sensitive to change and it may take longer to see that change. Um, so it may be a little bit more difficult in a shorter um, kind of placebo controlled time period in one of the RCTs. And I wonder how different it is between radiographic and non-radiographic too. You know, I don't know that we have great sense of how well it performs. And I mean, it does perform okay, but yeah. it long periods of time, like you said. Yeah, when you need to know a lot about event, an outcome measure before you're going to put it in a clinical trial, don't you? You want to know how it behaves. And I, I think that's also one of the problems with TACOSPA, that they didn't necessarily know quite as much about the um, Assess Health Index uh, going into designing that study. Exactly. Um, go ahead. Do you have another question? It, it, no. So I was going to say we're we're at time for our section. Um, so um, it's nine. Well, it's nine o'clock for me. <laughs> um, it is whatever time it is, but it's about on the hour wherever you are. Um, so it's my pleasure to hand over for the second half of this meeting and um, to talk about Stills disease. This program was sponsored by Novartis Medical Affairs. If you missed any part of this discussion, visit ReachMD.com slash ACR 2020. This is ReachMD. Be part of the knowledge.